middle of a revolution Because I see the face of things to come Yes, I do Well, my friend, it's gonna have to be I'm here to tell you about the destruction of all the evil it will have to end. You're listening to Socialist News and Views with your host, Nick Schillingford. I'm Nick Schillingford coming to you from the Urban Cabin Studios in South Minneapolis. In the second half of our show, we will hear the piece Why Socialism by Albert Einstein, read by Abdurrahman Hassan. Today on the show, we just have one news item that everyone should be paying attention to. This is the IPCC Sixth Assessment Report on Climate Change. As many commentators have said, It does not in any way point the finger at the billionaires or the system of capitalism as a whole and only uses the term human-induced climate change. It says of the current state of climate, it is unequivocal that human influence has warmed the atmosphere, ocean, and land. Widespread and rapid changes in the atmosphere, ocean, cryosphere, and biosphere have occurred. The scale of recent changes across the climate system as a whole and the present state of many aspects of the climate system are unprecedented over many centuries to many thousands of years. I encourage everyone to check out the report at ipcc.ch backslash report backslash AR6 backslash WG1 backslash. And now we go to a short interview that I conducted with one of the most recent additions to the team over at Unicorn Riot. On Socialist News and Views, we let folks introduce themselves. Uh, Tell us about yourself. Well, my legal name is Troy Amley, and my Native American name is Akichita Shunko Wakashka, and I received that name when I was 19, when I needed uh, some direction in my life, and within receiving that name, you have to go through a process, you have to talk to an elder, uh, talk to your family, see if they have one arranged for you. And in my case, they did. Mm. And in order in order to uh, qualify, so to speak, you right. needed to be uh, pure of heart, uh, uh, empathetic, and of caring nature and strong within uh, body, mind, and spirit. So once I receive that name, like, your your whole frequency shifts. Right. So you have to, like, kind of build yourself up to it. And uh, since then, I joined like the American Indian movement mm. to start and 
to start to build myself up uh, in leadership skills and uh, social skills. And that led me to Occupy Minnesota. Right. And I met a lot of good friends and activists through that, including Unicorn Riot when they right first first starting uh yeah. oh, you, you go ahead yeah i was just gonna say so I, yeah i heard you're gonna start working with uh unicorn riot which a lot of our listeners will be familiar with from coverage of the minneapolis uprising last year um you know what does that mean to you to go and work with unicorn Riot now uh i mean it means a lot and um i've known them since the beginning they had uh, their first members, uh, Andrew, D, uh, Ray, everybody. Mm. So it seems like a perfect fit to me. <laughs> right. And uh, they do a lot of the things that I'm actually uh into like web development right um videography graphic design uh tech operations uh live streaming make uh doing articles everything so will you be doing a little bit of everything or something specific uh it's free reign <laughs> all right <laughs> yeah and full disclosure i'm a longtime supporter of unicorn riot and so you know and obviously i care deeply about independent uh media uh, you know why do you see independent media as so important uh it's important because a lot of media media news uh in general have a biased view right and want to steer their audience towards a, a certain political spectrum or belief system and independent media outlets such as Unicorn Riot doesn't skew anyone's view they tell it like it is and I think that's important because uh, and another oh, and another thing they try to be uh, the voice for the community Right. Uh, they they don't put words in anyone's mouth. They uh, you hear it straight from the community, so that's important. Thank you for sharing me. Is there anything else you want to share about uh, your new work or about independent media in general? Well, I mean, being a Native American and having such an outlet as Unicorn Riot. Uh, what it bestows upon you. Uh, I feel like bringing a lot of issues to light that may have may not have been covered as much, like the Aboriginal struggle in Australia, with the oppression that goes on over there, seeing as they have the same type of things happening. And it's the same type of history and historical traumas as us over here in the United States. Uh, uh, and as well as environmental uh, justice topics like 
uh, urban farming, gardening, and what it does for the community and the youth and how it keeps them out of trouble. Absolutely. Um, and line three, and pipelines, police brutality, uh, sky's the limit. Well, I, I really appreciate you talking with me. I'm really excited for you to work at Unicorn Ride and, uh, you know, to see what you do over there and, uh, really appreciative for all the work that Unicorn Ride does. Uh, thanks again for speaking with me today. Yeah, no problem, Nicholas. Thank you for having me. <laughs> all right. And now we go to Why Socialism by Albert Einstein. This was first published in May 1949 in the first issue of Monthly Review. It's read by Abdurrahman Hassan. Why Socialism by Albert Einstein. Is it advisable for one who is not an expert on economic and social issues to express views on the subject of socialism? I believe for a number of reasons that it is. Let us first consider the question from the point of view of scientific knowledge. It might appear that there are no essential methodological differences between astronomy and economics. Scientists in both fields attempt to discover laws of general acceptability for a circumscribed group of phenomena in order to make the interconnection of these phenomena as clearly understandable as possible. But in reality, such methodological differences do exist. The discovery of general laws in the field of economics is made difficult by the circumstance that observed economic phenomena are often affected by many factors which are very hard to evaluate separately. In addition, the experience which has accumulated since the beginning of the so-called civilized period of human history has, as is well known, been largely influenced and limited by causes which are by no means exclusively economic in nature. For example, most of the major states of history owed their existence to conquest. The conquering people established themselves legally and economically as the privileged class of the conquered country. They seized for themselves a monopoly of the land ownership and appointed a priesthood from among their own ranks. The priests in control of education made the class division of society into a permanent institution and created a system of values by which the people were thenceforth to a large extent unconsciously guided in their social behavior. But historic tradition is, so, so to speak, of yesterday, nowhere have we really overcome what Thorstein Veblen called the predatory phase of human development. The observable economic facts belong to the phase and even such laws as we can derive from them are not applicable to other phases. Since the real purpose of socialism is precisely to overcome and advance beyond the predatory phase of human development, economic science in its present state can throw little light on the socialist society of the future. Second. Socialism is directed towards a social ethical end. Science, however, cannot create ends and even less instill them in human beings. Science, at most, can supply the means by which to attain certain ends. 
but the ends themselves are conceived by personalities with lofty ethical ideals, and if these ends are not stillborn, but vital and vigorous, are adopted and carried forward by those many human beings who have unconsciously determined the slow evolution of society. For these reasons, we should be on our guard not to overestimate science and scientific methods when it is a question of human problems. We should not assume that experts are the only ones who have a right to express themselves on questions affecting the organization of society. Innumerable voices have been asserting for some time now that human society is passing through a crisis that its stability has been gravely shattered. It is characteristic of such a situation that individuals feel indifferent or even hostile toward the group, small or large, to which they belong. In order to illustrate my meaning, let me record here a personal experience. I recently discussed with an intelligent and well-disposed man the threat of another war which in my opinion would seriously endanger the existence of mankind and I remarked that only a supranational organization would offer a protection from that danger. Thereupon my visitor very calmly and coolly said to me, why are you so deeply opposed to the disappearance of the human race? I'm sure that as little as a century ago no one would have so slightly made a statement of this kind. It is the statement of a man who has striven in vain to attain an equilibrium within himself and has more or less lost hope of succeeding. It is the expression of a painful solitude and isolation from which so many people are suffering these days. What is the cause? Is there a way out? It is easy to raise such a question, but difficult to answer them with any degree of assurance. I must try, however, as best as I can, although I'm very conscious of the fact that our feelings and strivings are often contradictory and obscure and that they cannot be expressed in easy and simple formulas. Man is, at one and the same time, a solitary being and a social being. As a solitary being, he attempts to protect his own existence and that of those who are closest to him to satisfy his personal desires and to develop his innate abilities. As a social being, he seeks to gain the recognition and affection of his fellow human beings, to share in their pleasure, to comfort them in their sorrows, and to improve their conditions of life. Only the existence of these varied, frequently conflicting, striving accounts of the special character of a man and their specific combination determines the extent to which an individual can achieve an inner equilibrium and can contribute to the well-being of society. It is quite possible that the relative strength of these two drives is in the main fixed by inheritance, but the personality that finally emerges is largely formed by the environment in which a man happens to find himself during his development. By the structure of the society in which he grows up, 
by the tradition of that society and by its appraisal of particular types of behavior, the abstract concept of society means to the individual human being the sum, the total of his direct and indirect relations to his contemporaries and to all people of earlier generations. The individual is able to think, feel, strife, and work by himself, but he depends so much upon society in his physical, intellectual, and emotional existence that it is impossible to think of him or to understand him outside of the framework of society. It is society which provides man with food, clothing, a home, the tools of work, language, the forms of thought, and most of the content of thought, his life is made possible through the labor and accomplishments of the many millions, past and present, who are all hidden behind the small word society. It is evident, therefore, that the dependence of the individual upon society is a fact of nature which cannot be abolished, just as in the case of ants and bees. However, while the whole life process of ants and bees is fixed down to the smallest detail by rigid hereditary instincts, the social pattern and interrelationship of human beings are very variable and susceptible to change. Memory, the capacity to make new combinations, the gift of oral communication have made possible developments among human beings which are not dictated by biological necessities. Such developments manifest themselves in traditions, institutions, and organizations, in literature, in scientific and engineering accomplishments, in works of art. This explains how it happens that, in a certain sense, man can influence his life through his own conduct, and that, in this process, conscious thinking and wanting can play a part. Many acquire at birth through hereditary, a biological constitution, which we must consider fixed and unalterable, including the natural urges which are characteristic of the human species. In addition, during his lifetime, he acquires a cultural constitution, which he adopts from society through communication and through many other types of influences. It is this cultural constitution which, with the passage of time, is subject to change and which determines to a very large extent the relationship between the individual and society. Modern anthropology has taught us, through comparative investigation of so-called primitive cultures, that the social behavior of human beings may differ greatly depending upon prevailing cultural patterns and the types of organization which predominate in society. It is on this that those who are striving to improve the lot of men may ground their hopes. Human beings are not condemned because of their biological constitution to annihilate each other or to be at the mercy of cruel self-inflicted fate. If we ask ourselves how the structure of society and the cultural attitude of man should be changed in order to make human life as satisfying as possible, we should constantly be conscious of the fact that there are certain conditions which we are unable to modify. As mentioned before, the biological nature of man is, for all practical purposes, 
not subject to change. Furthermore, technological and demographic developments of the last few centuries have created conditions which are here to stay in relatively densely settled population with the goods which are indispensable to their continued existence, an extreme division of labor and a highly centralized productive apparatus are absolutely necessary. The time which looking back seems so idyllic is gone forever when individuals or relatively small groups could be completely self-sufficient. It is only a slight exaggeration to say that mankind constitutes even now a planetary community of production and consumption. I have now reached the point where I may indicate briefly what to me constitutes the essence of the crisis of our time. It is a concern, the relationship of the individual to society. The individual has become more conscious than ever of his dependence upon society. But he does not experience this dependency as a positive asset, as an organic tie, as a protective force, but rather as a threat to his natural rights or even to his economic existence. Moreover, his position in society is such that the egotistical drives of his makeup are constantly being accentuated while his social drives which are by nature weaker, progressively deteriorate. All human beings, whatever their position in society, are suffering from this process of deterioration, unknowingly prisoners of their own egotism. They feel insecure, lonely, and deprived of the naive, simple, and unsophisticated enjoyment of life. Man can find meaning in life short and perilous as it is only through devoting himself to society. The economic anarchy of capitalist society as it exists today is, in my opinion, the real source of the evil. We see before us a huge community of producers, the members of which are unceasingly striving to drive each other of the fruits of their collective labor, not by force, but on the whole in faithful compliance with legally established rules. In this respect, it is important to realize that the means of production, that is to say the entire productive capacity that is needed for producing consumer goods as well as additional capital goods may legally be, and for the most part are, the private property of individuals. For the sake of simplicity, in the discussion that follows, I shall call workers all those who do not share in the ownership of the means of production, although this does not quite correspond to the customary use of the term. The owner of the means of production is in a position to purchase the labor power of the worker. By using the means of production, the worker produces new goods which become the property of the capitalist. The essential point about this process is the relation between what the worker produces and what he is paid, both measured in terms of real value. Insofar as the labor contract is free, what the worker receives is determined not by the real value of the goods he produces, but by his minimum needs 
and by the capitalist requirement for labor power in relation to the number of workers competing for jobs. It is important to understand that even in theory, the payment of the worker is not determined by the value of its product. Private capital tends to become concentrated in few hands, partly because of the competition among the capitalists and partly because technological development and the increasing division of labor encourage the formation of larger units of production at the expense of the smaller ones. The result of these developments is an oligarchy of private capital, the enormous power of which cannot be effectively checked even by a democratically organized political society. This is true since the members of legislative bodies are selected by political parties largely financed or otherwise influenced by private capitalists who, for all practical purposes, separate the electorate from the legislator. The consequence is that the representative of the people do not, in fact, sufficiently protect the interests of the underprivileged sections of the population. Moreover, under existing conditions, private capitalists inevitably control directly or indirectly the main sources of information, uh, press, radio, education. It is thus extremely difficult and indeed in most cases quite impossible for the individual citizen to come to objective conclusion and to make intelligent use of his political rights. The situation prevailing in an economy based on the private ownership of capital is thus characterized by two main principles. First, means of production, capital, are privately owned and the owner dispose of them as they see fit. Second, the labor contract is free. Of course, there is no such thing as a pure capitalist society in this sense. In particular, it should be noted that the worker, through long and bitter political struggles, have succeeded in securing a somewhat improved form of the free labor contract for a certain categories of workers. But taken as a whole, the present-day economy does not differ much from pure capitalism. Production is carried on for profit, not for use. There is no provision that all those able and willing to work will always be in a position to find employment. An army of unemployed almost always exists. The worker is constantly in fear of losing his job, since unemployed and poorly paid workers do not provide a profitable market. The production of consumer goods is restricted and great hardship is the consequence. Technological progress frequently results in more unemployment rather than in an easing of the burden of work for all. The profit motive, in conjunction with the competition among capitalists, is responsible for an instability in the accumulation and utilization of capital, which leads to increasingly severe depressions. Unlimited competition leads to a huge waste of labor and to that crippling of the social consciousness of the individuals which I mentioned before. 
This crippling of individuals I consider the worst evil of capitalism. Our whole educational system suffers from this evil. An exaggerated competitive attitude is inoculated into the student who is trained to worship acquisitive success as preparation for his future career. I am convinced that there is only one way to eliminate these grave evils, namely through the establishment of a socialist economy accompanied by an educational system which would be oriented toward social goals. In such economy, the means of production are owned by society itself and are utilized in a planned fashion. A planned economy which adjusts production to the needs of the community would distribute the work to be done among all those able to work and would guarantee a livelihood to every man, woman, and child. The education of the individual, in addition to promoting his own innate abilities, would attempt to develop him a sense of responsibility for his fellow man in place of the glorification of power and success in our present society. Nevertheless, it is necessary to remember that a planned economy is not yet socialism. A planned economy as such may be accompanied by the complete enslavement of the individual. The achievement of socialism requires the solution of some extremely difficult socio-political problems. How is it possible, in view of the far-reaching centralization of political and economic power, to prevent bureaucracy from becoming all-powerful and overwhelming? How can the rights of the individual be protected and therewith a democratic counterweight to the power of bureaucracy be assured? Clarity about the aims and problems of socialism is of greatest significance in our age of transition. Since, under present circumstances, free and unhindered discussion of these problems has come under a powerful taboo, I considered the foundation of this magazine to be an important public service. And that's the end of our show. Thanks for listening. This has been another edition of Socialist News and Views with your host, Nick Schillingford. 